There are different types of reading, different ways to read a text. There is a type of reading that is entirely valid and appropriate, which in effect takes a microscope and zooms in on perhaps a verse, perhaps a word within a verse. There's a type of reading that is particularly valuable when it concerns the Bible, which is a reading that zooms in and considers words in relation to other words and views perhaps just one or two verses at a time. And it may be that in the morning when you open up your Bible and commune with the Lord, that's the kind of reading that you're pursuing. This morning I read just two verses, and I met with the Lord through those verses, through the truths that he revealed to me. That is a good way to read the biblical text. There's another kind of reading that is also valuable, entirely valid and appropriate, even as we think about the Bible. And that is the kind of reading that puts the microscope to one side to step back and try to view the bigger picture. To take in more than a verse or two verses or even three or four verses, but to sit down and to say something like, this morning I met with the Lord by setting aside an hour and reading through the entirety of Mark's gospel. That's a good way to approach the biblical text. I would encourage you in these evenings as we work through Ephesians, perhaps make it a continuous practice at time to time, to sit down and read the entire letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians in one sitting. There is that zoomed-in kind of reading and the zoomed-out kind of reading. And one thing I'll often say to folks as they ask me about how best to study the Bible is, if possible, try to practice both. Try to be in the practice of both kinds of reading because both will have their own merits. Each will show you different things in the text. Over the last few weeks, we have been zoomed in, very much looking at one or two thoughts at a time, one or two doctrines at the most, every Sunday evening. And I trust and pray that as we've done that, you have gained a clearer apprehension of the contours of this long eulogy at the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians. Paul packs it full of theological truth, and we have tried as best we can to see those truths and hopefully to see them as they relate to one another. This evening, I want to step back. The microscope is being put to one side And if possible, to try and put our arms around the whole thought. This is one sentence in the original language. One sentence. The second longest sentence in all of the New Testament is here from verses 3 through 14. Grammatically, the fact that it is one sentence suggests to us that Paul is trying to communicate one thought in addition to giving us all of these rich theological doctrines which are true of us in Christ, each in their own, in their own value can be ministered to the Christian and be edifying, in addition to that reality, at the same time it would seem to be that Paul is trying to communicate one single message to the Ephesians through this opening passage. And my hope tonight is that we might grasp hold of what is that singular message. Hopefully we'll see some things that maybe we haven't seen thus far. Hopefully I can draw your attention to what are some of the salient themes that permeate all the way through this eulogy. In addition to all of the doctrines that we have considered over the last few weeks, I want to, if possible this evening, open your eyes to what are the predominant themes that guide Paul's thinking in this opening text. My thesis statement, I'll give it to you up front, and then we'll spend the evening unpacking it, 
Paul writes to the Ephesians to tell them very simply that God chose you to be part of the church so as to praise him. That's my overarching summary of these opening verses. If I could condense Paul's thinking, his message in verses 3 through 14 into one sentence, it would be, God chose you to be part of the church so as to praise him. I want to spend the first part of the evening thinking about why that might be his burden. Why would Paul be concerned to communicate that truth? And then to spend the rest of the evening thinking through what that means. And hopefully to show you from the text why Paul says that, how he says it, what the implications are for us here this evening. So why would Paul open his letter to the Ephesians with a message that says, God chose you to be part of the church so as to praise him? Why would he choose to open the letter like that? Context is key. And here we're just going back a few weeks to our time in the book of Acts, when we hopefully set the stage for this whole letter. You'll remember, Paul had a relatively long ministry with the Ephesians longer than any other church that he was able to spend time with. Around about three years, Paul was with the Ephesian Christians. And it wasn't just duration of time, but just the amount of teaching that he was able to give them that was significant. In Acts chapter 19, we read of Paul teaching the church in Ephesus in the upper hall of Tyrannus for, it would seem, many hours every day. They had this condensed teaching from Paul in three years, many hours every day, where he would just keep giving them the riches of the gospel, of salvation, of sin, of God's glory, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, of the doctrine of the church, of the doctrine of the end times, you name it. Seemingly, Paul taught them it. So they were very well built up. Around about the same time, some problems began to arise, not within the church, but outside of the church. The primary theological backdrop for the letter to the Ephesians is the Artemis cult. The Artemis temple is there in Ephesus, and perhaps thousands would be going to worship the goddess Artemis every day. And what was happening, as we read in Acts chapter 19, is that many were turning away from that toward the church. The gospel was doing its thing. The Christians were not being obnoxious. They weren't seeking for trouble. They weren't stirring up strife within the city. The gospel was just doing its thing. And we read in the book of Acts, these men who preached the gospel, what did they do? They turned the world upside down. Not through anything of their own doing, but simply by teaching that Jesus is the way of salvation. So the gospel was having its effect in Ephesus, and so people are leaving the Artemis cult and going to the upper hall. As that happens, a number of businessmen are getting bothered. We read about Demetrius the silversmith. These businessmen around the Artemis temple who are selling trinkets. Their business is very much dependent upon people coming to worship Artemis. Their business, their way of life is dependent upon people not doing something else. And so as more and more are joining the church, they are losing their business. And so Demetrius kicks up a a fuss. And we read in the book of Acts of a riot in Ephesus because of this. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is told by the Holy Spirit to move on. And it's one of the saddest chapters in the book of Acts because it's a tearful, tearful goodbye. They don't want him to go and and he feels bound by the Holy Spirit to go. And so they part ways and now the church in Ephesus is left without their 
shepherd. There's no reason to think that the difficulties that they had begun to experience in Ephesus died down after Paul's departure. There is no reason to think that the difficulties they had begun to experience as their faith was was coming into contact with the Artemis cult died down after Paul left. If anything, most likely it kept increasing. But now they don't have their leader with them. Paul's this brave apostle and he steps forth. And he's able to defend the gospel and defend them, but now he's not there. So the Ephesians have to stand up and give a reason for their faith. Paul writes to them some time after. As you read through Ephesians, there is no indication that there are any problems within the church. Some other letters in the New Testament, it's plain for all to see that the apostle is writing because there's a division within the church. That's not the case with Ephesians, at least not at the time Paul is writing to them. But quite possibly, he finds cause to write because of the issues they're experiencing outside of the church. You might even say it like this, perhaps the Ephesians are beginning to experience an identity crisis. The pressure is coming from outside and they are starting to wonder about their faith and their fidelity to the gospel. And Paul writes to shore them up in who they are. He writes a letter to them so that they would be certain of the gospel in which they have placed their lives, staked their faith. He says, this is who you are in Christ, and your understanding of your identity is the means by which you might stand when it's most needed. You see, it's no accident that the letter to the Ephesians finishes with Paul saying, put on the armor of God. Paul understands that the battle is close, that things aren't as peaceful as once they were when he was amongst them. And so he says to them in his his closing paragraphs, put on the armor of God. Be ready because you don't want to fail in that day when your faith is tested. You need to be ready to be who you are. And in a sense, the whole letter to the Ephesians is Paul simply reminding them of what they already know to be true concerning their identity in Christ. The opening eulogy is the theology of the letter in miniature. The theology of the whole letter gets packed into these opening verses. We get a theological summary of everything that is to come in these opening verses. And so even here, Paul is reminding the Ephesians of who they are in order that they would have confidence to stand for Christ in the day of testing. That is why Paul might say what he does in these opening verses. That is why he writes the things that he does to them. Now, concerning what he writes, God chose you to be part of the church so as to praise him. Let's think about those in in turn and try to understand how each constituent part of that sentence gives them confidence to live the Christian life. Beginning with that first part, God chose you. Look with me at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
So you see, we focused on it perhaps most in the first few verses when the doctrine of election was most clearly in view. But tonight I want to stress that God's will is a theme that permeates all the way through this passage. It doesn't get left behind after the first few verses, but actually Paul brings it up over and over and over again so that the Ephesians know, first and foremost, that God chose them. Or, to say it another way, Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to know that they are the objects of God's will. They are the objects of God's will. God has exercised his will toward the Ephesians, and they are but the recipients. What is the will of God? Well, Paul teaches them that the will of God is holy, it is loving, and it is grace-fueled to say just three things about his will. Paul teaches them that his will is holy, it is loving, and it is grace-fueled. And what he wants the Ephesians to consider, consistently have in their minds, is that their place in Ephesus, even in the midst of trouble, is a product of, an outworking of, the result of God's holy, loving, and gracious will. They are not where they are by their own doing. They don't happen to go to worship in the church because they chose to, but because God chose them. They are not called to a holy life because they decided that was a good idea, but because they were chosen by a holy God. They are not commended to love their brothers and sisters and to turn the other cheek when they are maligned because they think that's a good idea, but because they are the outworking, the product, the result of God's holy, loving, gracious will. They are not to exercise the same grace toward their enemies that they themselves had received in the gospel from God because they see the reasonableness of such behavior, but they're to do such things because they are the objects of God's will. Now, how would it be that instilling that single idea into the Ephesians' theology should give them confidence? How would it be that as Paul instills in them the reality of God's will guiding everything, that that would shore them up in their identity? I'll give you an example and then we'll go back to the text. As I was thinking through this just this week, I was reminded of my very last appointment within the military that happened to be a very confrontational job. I was in it for only one year, I was within the submarine service, and it was my turn for an office job. So I'd been going to sea for some years, lots of tearful goodbyes, and at the end of that appointment, it was finally my job, my turn to be given an office job. You don't have to go to sea anymore, you get to come home every night. So we were excited about this, and then I found out the details of the particular desk job that I would have. And it was, in essence, to be something akin to a, a safety inspector on the site where a company was building our submarines. So we pay them billions of dollars, pounds, and they build for us our submarines. And I'm the lone naval officer on this site inspecting their work. And my particular area, my particular remit, was to look at the nuclear work on site and to ask the question, 30 years from now, will what you're doing today result in a safe nuclear reactor? So the stakes are high. <laughs> Every day I'm looking at their work and saying, 30 years from now, will what you're doing give us a safe nuclear reactor on board our submarines. And I'm a 20-something junior officer in the Navy, 
And I quickly learned that this job was going to be very confrontational. The reason being is because the company that we're paying to make these submarines for us want to make the most money in the shortest time with the little amount of labor. And of course, in their mind, everything passes the test. And the reality of my job was every single day I would be in meetings uh, full of people that were telling me it's fine. I would be in boardrooms full of men many, many years older than me with much more experience than me. And my job was to say, I'm not happy with this work. I learned an awful lot that year about what confrontation should look like. I learned how to disagree. I learned how to say no. As I would drive in in the morning and I think through in my head the meetings that I had lined up for that day, I had a fair idea of just how confrontational some of those meetings would be. And again, I just I felt my youth. I felt just the inexperience that I was bringing to the table, and yet I knew my job. And so I had to figure out a way to stand my ground in those meetings to do a good job and not to fail the Navy and, and my boss. And what I would do is simply think upon the fact that I'm going into these meetings with nothing to do with me, but everything to do with the person that I'm representing. So I was part of a team. The team was situated elsewhere in the country. I was this lone officer on site. The head of the team is a commodore, just one rank below an admiral. That was my boss. That's who I reported to. And the Commodore was a wonderful man. He had been very, very kind and gracious to me as I had joined the team. And I did not want to let him down. He had given me a letter. And the letter said that all work on this site is to stop immediately. And he had signed it. And I was to carry that letter around with me everywhere. If work got really bad, I would just display the letter and all work would stop. And every single day as I drove into work, I just thought to myself, I am representing this man. These meetings and these confrontations have got nothing to do with me. I told myself, don't take this personally. When they come after you in the meeting, it's got nothing to do with you. And you, your job is to represent the Commodore, to make sure that he's happy with what you said in that meeting. I was essentially a vessel of his will on that site. And so you see the logic that Paul employs is not all that far from the way in which I thought about my confrontational job. Paul is writing to them, laboring the reality of them being the objects of God's will. He says, you're not in this by your choosing, you can't take the credit for it, and it's no accident that things are starting to heat up a little bit now in the city of Ephesus. All of it comes under the sovereign guiding hand of God. His will was exercised towards you. And as you ponder the reality of His benevolent will invading your life when you did not seek Him, He picked you up and He saved you. And now you are destined for an inheritance. As you consider those realities, you can stand. You are equipped to do your job as a Christian. If you start to focus on you, if you lose sight of God's will in your life, and your Christianity is all about what you can do, there is no saying that you'll stand when your faith is tested. But as you consider the reality of being the object of God's benevolent will in the gospel, then you are equipped to stand. Now, God's choosing of you was not in isolation from the next part of our sentence, namely, that he chose you to be part of the church. He chose you, and he didn't leave you by yourself, a, a Christian without any relationship to other Christians. 
But his desire, his will, was that you would be part of the church. So look with me at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, that we should be holy and blameless. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, until we acquire possession of it. The word church is not in this opening eulogy, but what I want to try and show you is just how replete this paragraph is with the plural pronouns. Hardly a thought goes by without Paul saying us and we. And he does, as you'll remember, talk about the mystery that God revealed to us, which in the book of Ephesians means the church. The point is, as Paul is stressing to the Ephesians, when God saved you, he called you into community with other believers. He called you into a local church. That was his design for you. He never intended for your salvation to be appreciated and appropriated in an individualistic way. He never intended that your salvation would be appreciated and appropriated in an individualistic manner. Christians are not supposed to bask in the glory of the gospel by themselves. But rather, we're to do so as a community endeavor. Now, I want to be very, very clear on this. God saves you individually. God saves individuals. When he justifies someone, he justifies that person based on the faith that he has given to them toward Jesus Christ. So we're saved individually but we appreciate our salvation corporately. That's how it's supposed to work. You notice in the book of Acts, as you read through, immediately upon salvation, the believer, the brand new believer, is baptized and then identifies with the local community. It would have been completely foreign to anyone in Luke's day to have received the gospel savingly and then to have done nothing about it with respect to the church. And perhaps, just as Paul sought to labor the reality of the corporate endeavor that it is to be to the praise of God's glory, Paul labored it to the Ephesians, just as he labored it, perhaps we need to do so even more. Perhaps we need to do so even more. And the reason I say that is because we live in a far more individualistic age than the Ephesians did. It is one of the plagues of our time that we identify and consider ourselves based upon our preferences. It's a fascinating study to consider throughout the history of civilization how people have defined the self. How do we understand the self? How does he understand himself? How do you understand yourself? Years ago, the definition of self would have been derived with reference to those around you. So if I had asked you the question some decades ago, Tell me about yourself. You would have said something like, well, 
I'm married to this person. I'm employed by this person. I'm obligated towards this person. I have responsibilities towards these folks. That's what you need to know about me. The definition of self decades ago would have been with reference to those around the individual. Today, as a marker of our individualism, tell me about yourself. I like this, and I really enjoy this, and this is what I love to spend my time doing, with almost no mention of any sense of responsibility towards others. And so that causes problems for Christians. This is a a real issue in society, and it has bled into the local church. It is in the thinking of the local church such that Christians today do not understand the local church as the utmost priority as it relates to their salvation. It ought to be the utmost priority of the Christian to identify themselves with reference to the local church. Tell me about yourself. There is one thing you need to know. I am a member of this local church. That's how I'm defined. And with that comes the implication that I'm saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would Paul's emphasis on the church be a great comfort to the Ephesians? Why would he labor this so as to shore them up in their identity of themselves as the pressure around them is increasing? In part, we might be tempted to say, well, there's strength in numbers. You emphasize the corporate nature of their Christianity, and sure enough, they'll find strength in their numbers. But you quickly see that can't be the logic. That can't be the logic for at least two reasons. Number one, the church that God calls you to could be very, very, very small. In God's wisdom, he might call you to a very, very, very small church, and all of a sudden, the strength in numbers argument doesn't work. Secondarily, the strength in numbers argument does work for a social club. You can go go and join any organization... And if it's large enough, regardless of what marks that organization, you'll find a sense of strength in their numbers. So that can't be Paul's argument for laboring the priority of the church in the believer's life. Rather, I think it goes back to the centrality of the church in redemptive history. And we rehearse this that first night in the book of Acts. Simply stated, it is the crown jewel of redemptive history. It is the bride of Christ. It is God's chosen instrument for how he is progressing his plan of salvation. If you want to know about God's design for bringing glory unto himself that will culminate in the last day with the return of Christ and the nations praising him, You don't need to look any further than the local church, because that's it. The Bible teaches us the centerpiece of God's outworking of his plan right now in redemptive history is the local church. I'll say it again, and you'll hear me say this again and again. It is the most significant institution on planet Earth, period. There is no other institution on planet earth that has more significance than the local church. Any Bible-believing, Bible-teaching local church de facto is the most significant institution at the point that it meets. You don't want to be anywhere else. You don't want to be at any other organization because there is no other business or profit-making corporation or group of people within which such eternally significant work is happening than the local church. If only, if only we could have eyes to see the eternal value that is being worked out every single time we meet. We would never miss church again. 
if we could see what God does through the singing of a hymn together. I truly believe that each and every time the church meets on the Lord's Day and sings a song of praise to God, there are things that are happening that we will only appreciate in glory. And we will stand there and say, I had no idea that that was what God was doing when we sang together. If we could only see what God is doing when corporately we bow our heads and close our eyes and together we pray to him. I truly believe in that moment he is doing eternally significant things, the likeness of which we have no comprehension. If we could but see the eternal value of the tiniest acts of service that happen on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening. As one brother serves another, as one sister serves another, as someone responds to the plea, we need more workers in the nursery. I'll go because it needs to be filled. No, no, no. You'll go because you have no idea how eternally significant that act of service is. That's why you run to that plea. We need someone to help fold the bulletins. I'll do it because I truly believe that through this institution, unlike any other institution on planet earth, God is doing eternally significant things in everything that we do together. So why would you choose to be anywhere else ever? When the church doors are open, I'll be there. Now, it's when and only when you have located that theology of the church in your heart, when you've put it in here and you've embraced it and you've said, I'm going to choose to believe it. I don't necessarily see it. I can't see what is happening when we sing together or when I serve in the nursery. I don't see it because it's supernatural in its nature, but I'm going to choose to embrace it. When you have done that, the church becomes for you a great haven. You see how this is such an encouragement for Paul to tell the Ephesians, God chose us. God loved us. We together enjoy the benefit of sonship. We corporately have been called into this body as he labors the plural pronouns in this paragraph, emphasizing what will become the major theme of this letter, the local church. He is issuing to them a great balm for their souls. This is a safe place for you, Christian. This is supposed to be a safe place for you. And I do believe as the Ephesians saw what was going on out in the street and they were feeling the pressure, the doctrine of the church suddenly became very precious to them. Perhaps the lethargy that is seen amongst Christians today toward the church is in part because we have not yet felt the pressure from other entities. Let me encourage you right now to be fostering that theology of the church and acting upon it. The day of testing for the church in the West hasn't come yet, at least not in its fullest expression, but that doesn't mean that you can't foster and act upon this theology of the church. Husbands, lead your wives by bringing them to church. Lead your families by setting the expectation in your home that if the church is gathering, we're going to be there. But dad, the, the, these folks aren't going. It doesn't matter whether they're going to be there or not. The church is meeting. But, but dad, the, this is happening tonight. And, and I just know it's really important. And I know that this is hard, and I know that we're tired, and, and there would be a 
thousand reasons to not be at church tonight. But we're going to be there. Because it's the most important institution on planet earth. And we have membership. So we're going to be present. And we're going to trust that God is doing through us and in us every single time we meet eternally significant things. This is why Paul labors the reality of the church, the Ephesians. God chose you to be part of the church. So as, last part of the sentence now, so as to praise him. This is the third prominent theme within this eulogy. Paul labors God's will, the exercising of his will. Paul labors the church or the corporate nature of their Christianity. And then three times, as you know, he says, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. I would dare to say that had Paul carried on this sentence, if he hadn't finished at verse 14, but he just kept going, and there's more to say, if he had carried on, I would dare to guess that that phrase would show up a few more times. It seems to be the drumbeat of what Paul is saying here. He is showing us, at least part of what he's doing, is showing us that the nature of the God who has saved us is self-exalting. Now just think about that. The nature of the God who saved you is self-exalting. If it wasn't, he wouldn't be God. God cares more than anything else for his glory. And if that weren't true, he wouldn't be God. Something else would be. This is so crucial to our understanding of the gospel. If we don't meditate upon verse 6 and 12 and 14 and see the end of this trajectory being the praise of his glory we start to foster a self-centered gospel. We start to meditate and delight in a gospel that is focused entirely on us. God saved you above all things to bring Him glory. Jonathan Edwards wrote an essay that many of you will know entitled, The End for Which God Created the World. The end for which God created the world. And I'll just summarize it for you now. His glory. You should read it. I know you've got a lot of other things to be reading. You might not get around to it for some time. I'll just give it to you in the synopsis form. Jonathan Edwards says his glory is the end for which God created the world. Now... The reality, as you know, by virtue of Genesis chapter 3 and our own sin, our own choosing, our own rebellion, the reality is that all of humanity is walking in the opposite direction. God created the whole universe with one purpose in mind, to bring him glory. He sets a very clear arrow for the cosmos to follow. All of humanity, by virtue of our sin, is going in the other direction. Not willing, not able to bring him glory. What Paul asserts here is that through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, God graciously picked you up and he turned you around. Humanity is going in the opposite direction. Not at some tangent in the completely opposite direction to the end for which God created the world. And God, by his grace, picked you up and turned you around. 
So that now your life is oriented in the same direction for the end which God created the world. You are now able and willing to praise God. Now, notice, just going back in my sentence, one of the realities of the church is that that is the sphere in which God is most praised. This is why you don't want to live an individualistic Christianity. Can you bring God praise by yourself on a Tuesday morning? Absolutely. Yes and amen. Can you bring God praise on a Thursday evening in your small group? Of course you can. Can God be praised at a Christian conference with thousands of attendees? Of course he can. But by his design, the sphere in which he will most be praised is the local church. And by his grace, God picked you up. He reoriented your entire life so that now you are able to praise him and join with the rest of the cosmos in bringing him glory. And your responsibility is to order all of your salvation benefits under that priority. As you think about your adoption, your election, God's grace, your redemption from sins, the forgiveness of your trespasses, your inheritance, your Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you, as you think about these... All of them fit under the imperative to praise God. All of these things are true of you in order that he would get more praise in your life. Now in his wisdom, he has not called you home yet. In God's wisdom, he picked you up, he reoriented you in line with the direction for which the earth was created, and now you can praise him, but for some reason he hasn't called you to glory, you're here. And so think about that in accordance with my picture that I've created. You're going in this way, and there are thousands coming in this way, not praising God. So it would stand to reason that from time to time, you hit up against somebody. There are thousands coming in this direction not praising God. And your life, according to God's grace, is striving to bring him glory. And from time to time, as you make your beeline towards his glory, and thousands come in this direction, your shoulder will hit up against someone. Your life will hit up against someone who's not bringing him glory. The church will come into contact with a society that is headed in the other direction. That's the reality of being a Christian on this earth right now. And quite possibly in the days ahead, there'll be more and more and more contacts for the Christian church in America. And so what you need to do is instill in your heart a deep conviction concerning the why. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I not going to change my behavior even though the going is getting tough? Because the end for which God created the world is his glory and he, by his grace, has oriented me in such a way that I can join in with that effort. So no matter how hard it gets, I'm not going to turn around. That is what Paul wants the Christians in Ephesus to know and to embrace. God chose you to be part of the church so as to praise him. Now again, in our context, we haven't felt perhaps what the Christians in Ephesus were feeling at the time of writing. Though I do think we're seeing more of it. One of the realities of our day is that it seems to be right now, if you say the wrong thing and you say it publicly enough, folks are going to come and look for you. They're going to try and make your life a misery. It wasn't that long ago that I saw a comment made by somebody who I believe has some Christian convictions to some degree and they 
They put something out there on social media. And of course, it wasn't to the liking of a number of different groups. And so they sought very quickly to end his career and to ruin his life. And he quickly recanted. He quickly took back the comment and said, I was wrong and I obviously have much to learn. And I said to Laura, why are they doing this? Speaking about the individual, I said, why are people allowing themselves to be bullied in this way? Why aren't they just standing their ground and say, that, that is what I believe? And Laura said, just, just be slow to speak. Wait until you see what happens when they're at our door. And certainly... I've not been in that position, but it might not be long before Christians start to feel the consequences of their beliefs. And so now, now and not then in a reactionary way, but now we need to assure ourselves through God's word that God chose us to be part of the church in order to praise him. May that be our confidence, whatever God has in store in the days ahead. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you again this evening for this wonderful portion of Scripture so rich in its theological truths. So many doctrines of salvation underpinned by the realities of your will being exercised towards us. You chose us. Underpinned by the truth that you called us to be part of the church and underpinned by the reality that it is all for the praise of your glory. Lord, I do ask that you would instill in our hearts this evening the simple and yet profound truth that you chose us to be part of the church so as to praise you. That you would work out that truth in our lives and that it would be a great great comfort to us. It would assure us of who we are in Christ and that it would be a means by which we stand our ground and give you glory no matter what happens. In Jesus' name, amen.